Welcome back. Thanks so much for spending some of your Wednesday afternoon with me. I'm your guest host, Deb Hutton. And right now I am joined by three of our smart speakers. Matt Gurney, co-founder and editor of The Line, which is an online magazine. He's also a columnist for TV Ontario. Jamie Ellerton, founding partner at Canaptis and longtime political strategist. And Faye Johnstone, co-owner and executive director of the consulting firm Wisdom to Action. Welcome to all of you. Let's get going right off the top with a topic I was just discussing with Brian Lilly. He authored a column uh, in the Toronto Sun that says TDSB calls education a colonial structure centered on whiteness. It's based on a paper that was done by uh, four employees of the board, uh, two principals, an education consultant, and a teacher. It's called Facilitating Critical Conversation. Uh, Brian's uh, challenge with this, to say the least, and mine as well, is that some of the core principles stated as core principles in this document are all around um, the the notion that our school system is, quite frankly, uh, inherently designed for the benefit of of the dominant culture. In other words, you know, white individuals, that education is a colonial structure that centers on whiteness and Eurocentricity and therefore must be actively decolonized. Matt Gurney, I'm going to start with you for your thoughts. Your kids are in the system here in the city. How do you react to it? Honestly, to the greatest extent possible, I don't. Uh, Not only do I have two kids (laughs) in elementary school, I have a wife who's an elementary school teacher. There's a pretty high rate of just gobbledygook communications that sort of either come home on printed sheets or get uh, emailed to us. And I look through it and I figure out like when pizza day is and like when volleyball tryouts are. And I put those in the calendar and the rest I just ignore. There is, and this is not just in in school boards, although school boards are, are particularly controversial, but a lot of companies out there as well have probably, in a well-meaning sense, have decided that they want to be modern and inclusive workplaces. So they establish budgets to go out and support those initiatives. And those budgets probably accomplish some worthwhile things. And some percentage of those budgets get directed to things like this. I just I like I don't really know what to do with this. I know that the school board has already said it's going to be withdrawing it. I'm just going to make sure my kids can read, write, and do math. Like that's where I'm going to focus. So, Jamie, I'm not as passive as Matt is on this particular topic. And part of the reason for it is because my kids' education is not in great shape. They have teacher absences. We're going to talk about the teacher shortage in a few moments. They have teacher absences constantly. You know, we talk about how we've got a challenge in the classroom with discipline and with kids who have uh, unique learning disabilities who aren't serviced. And yet we've got four people doing something like this, which has nothing to do with what the board is responsible for, in my humble view. Yeah, when you kind of read Brian Lee's report, this sounds like something that should have been more of a sociology paper in university and maybe discussed at some forum. And I think if you kind of start at like core principles, an education system, of course, is going to teach societal standards uh, and norms to kids. And that's how we educate the next generation and prepare them for their life as adults but i think where this one definitely crosses the line is like it's not looking to say address historical wrongs and some of the systemic racism that genuinely exists 
in Ontario, it reads more like a radical manifesto uh, designed to create revolution from within. Uh, and I think that's not going to sit well with people. And I think especially if you look at it from like a persuasion and how you're teaching people and engaging people with these concepts, uh, putting it as a core principle sounds like it's 100% set in stone, not up for debate, and it becomes more of an exercise in groupthink. Uh, this is what you have to officially say in official channels. Uh, and I don't think it's going to win over any allies, as uh, the authors may have thought they were doing and putting this forward. Well, and Faye Johnston, I mean, it's it's aside from everything that Jamie said, which I agree with, you know, if this was a document to say, how do we ensure that our teachers in the Toronto District uh, School Board uh, reflect diversity? Uh, you know, those sorts of hiring type, here are the principles for our hiring practices, as an example. I, I might be less exercised about it, but that's not what this is, and that is not what the school board is supposed to be doing. You know, absolutely. And I would actually, I think gobbledygook was a great line from Matt, and I, I would agree. But I, I do think the intent underneath this matters. When I read this, I read it as an intent to help adapt an education system that was not designed for black students, indigenous students, for gay students or trans students, and all those other young folks who don't feel as supported or seen in the classroom. I think framing it as core principles is a little bit of a messy way to put it forward. And I think I would probably take this out of the ivory tower and bring it to something more concrete. But I do think, you know, our schools do not serve all young people equally. And there's a lot of kids who need more support and aren't safe in the classroom. And so that's what we need to get back to. And we need to take this out of an abstraction that does indeed feel like it would fit better in a gender studies program. All right. So one of the other challenges we have, as I just referenced, is that we do have a tremendous teachers shortage in this province. It's not looking like it's going to get any better. Uh, the province says it's coming forward with some announcements. So I'm going to give the three of you an opportunity to say what the province should do to address the teachers shortage. Matt, you get to start. Um, I mean, uh, the, the easy answer would be to get the TDSB to put these four teachers back in the classroom, as you were saying a minute ago, Deb. But I think we should maybe think about that for a minute and keep them exactly where they are. They can write all the reports they want. Um, no, look, I mean, it's a lot of it comes down to pay. And it's really interesting because, my, again, my wife is a teacher and she's been in the industry, oh, gosh, in 10, 15 years. And I remember when she was graduating from school, the problem was that we had an oversupply of teachers, that there were so many teachers colleges that were cranking out graduates faster than we could place them, that the province actually doubled the uh, number of years that you had to go to school to become a teacher. And that was 100% to cut the outflow in half. A lot of people I knew ended up going to teachers colleges in Western New York and then coming back to a home to Southern Ontario to start teaching. So 10, 15 years ago, we deliberately pinched off the pipeline of new teachers and now we're shocked to find out that teachers are retiring and we don't have enough of them the province says it's going to do everything it can um it's it's the same old lever and there's not going to be any public appetite for this but if you want to recruit more people or keep the ones you have you got to pay them more jamie ellerton um as matt says this is cyclical and and we have the ups and the downs and we're now in in a down um place when it comes to teacher supply i have a problem with attendance i think that's exacerbating the issue because we have a lot of teachers who are taking their full attendance days uh back when we dealt with this when i was uh, working for mike harris we actually allowed for non-certified teachers to teach things the example we used to always use was you have someone who is a mechanic come in and teach shop you know a bit of an outdated reference 
reference, but so, you know, bring it to 2024. Are there examples where we can have non-certified teachers actually in instructional uh, modes, particularly in high school? Is that one of the suggestions we can make? I think that absolutely is a suggestion that could be made down, but uh, the teachers unions aren't going to like it because they want to maintain the monopoly on supply of educators into the system. Uh, and that's going to be a fight that the province would have to pick up. And uh, given this government's propensity for flip-flops, I, I, I don't think they have the courage to see that through. And I think if you look at this more broadly than just beyond schools, like industry after industry, sector after sector is predicting a massive labor shortage as boomers retire and we're not training them fast enough. And so well, boomers are going to be making top dollar at the end of their lives uh, and benefiting from the systems that are in place. The underlying what's there supportive that comes after needs a lot of work. And I think we're going to have to see some actual restructuring to your uh, idea, Deb, as to how we actually bring educators in. Does it have to be the same teacher that's there all day in every class as it tends to be in elementary school? Or can you do it, have different teachers for different subjects at different parts of the day and run the system to make it more flexible and enable more people to contribute to the system on a part-time basis uh, to ultimately raise teaching supply capacity? Faye Johnston, I'm being really unfair to you, but you got 30 seconds. Oh no, pay teachers more. Uh, make it so teachers don't have to sell their souls and their work-life balance to be teachers and then pay them some more after that too. Wow, you did it. <laughs> or you could be like the Montreal teacher where you sell your students art. Yes, exactly. You you completely <laughs> you completely put things on the table. I disagree with Faye, but you did it in the time frame. So kudos to you. <laughs> Coming up after the break, we're going to discuss um, whether Ottawa needs a new ombudsperson. Really? Another new position? Matt Gurney, Jamie Ellerton, and Faye Johnstone. They'll stick around and we'll discuss that and much more. You're listening to The Rush with guest host Deb Hutton on News Talk 1010. Welcome back. You're listening to guest host Deb Hutton, joined by three of our smart speakers this afternoon. Matt Gurney, co-founder and editor of The Line, an online magazine and a columnist for TV Ontario. Jamie Ellerton, founding partner at Canaptus and longtime political strategist. And Faye Johnstone, co-owner and executive director of consulting firm Wisdom to Action. Uh, where do I want to go next here, guys? Why don't we go to the Liberals and the carbon tax? I asked our panelists, I think yesterday, what they thought of the Ford government's omnibus legislation, and in particular, the part of it that will call for a referendum by any government before they introduce into the province a carbon pricing system. And, and I actually asked the question, is it gimmicky? Is it good politics? Or is it both? So I'm going to argue it is both because it was obviously uh, aimed at trying to find out where Bonnie Crombie stands on a carbon tax. She's been asked about this now as a direct result of the referendum and a direct result of the of the work that the premier did uh, to try and get her to nail down a position. And she has said she comes from the school, the Hazel McCallion School of Thought that says, do your homework, do your research. They're going to study it, et cetera, et cetera. Matt Gurney, my problem with that is she's formerly a federal MP. She was formerly mayor of the city of Mississauga, one of the largest cities in our country, and she has now come through a leadership race in his Liberal Party leader. Shouldn't you at least have a principle-based answer to where do you stand on carbon pricing? 
Um, I never invest our political leaders with too much assumption of principle. Um, so I, I don't know if she should have a principled one. I think she should have a political one. And I think, yeah, I, I agree with you, Deb. And I remember not all that long ago. Well, I guess it kind of was a long time now. We're all getting old. I remember early in Kathleen Wynne's first term, uh, there was a habit that I had identified in, in a column I wrote for the National Post at the time, was that any time an issue came up, it got punted to some kind of review or a committee or a task force or a panel. And I, I think that might have made sense. Probably not. But like you could have made an argument for that. If Kathleen Wynne was a newly elected premier of a government that had just come in replacing a party that had previously been in power, it was a lot harder to buy that Kathleen Wynne needed a lot of time to review Dalton McGuinty's decisions. I think it was an obvious attempt to punt and buy some distance from political problems here. Bonnie Crombie will have the benefit, in theory, of replacing a conservative government, of replacing Doug Ford if she's elected as premier. But I don't think she should get into the habit of just thinking anything even remotely complicated should be punted. I like it when politicians take bold stands, even if they're unpopular ones. I don't have to agree with them. I'm just tired of being offered up pablum all the time. Yeah, Jamie, I mean, I, you know, I, I acknowledge my partisanship quite freely and, and quite often. You maybe don't even need me to acknowledge it if you hear me talk, but I do nonetheless. And so maybe <laughs> I'm being overly partisan here. But you know, when I said to Matt, principle-based, like at least have the the forethought on this question to say, look, we will have a pricing scheme, details to be worked out, or I believe carbon pricing is doing what we need to do to combat uh, the climate challenges we face. We'll work out deep. Like something, uh, when, when I say principles-based, just tell us one way or another where you stand. Yeah, this is nothing more than a political stunt in the government's legislation. Uh, it's designed to entrap Bonnie Crombie, and she, I don't think, has fallen necessarily in it yet, uh, but she's definitely stumbling around the margins of it. Uh, I think when you look at the kind of reality of the politics on this step, you have Alberta NDP leadership candidates running against a carbon tax, a consumer carbon tax, uh, and talking how it's not doing anything to really advance climate action. And even if you listen to the economic theorists who actually put forth the carbon tax, they will tell you that the price on carbon has to be astronomically higher than what it is today to actually do anything to change anyone's behavior. Uh, aside from just making you annoyed when you see it on your Enbridge gas bill every month or every couple months, depending what your billing cycle is. And so for Bonnie Crombie right now, I think she's probably trying to get her feet under her. She's probably trying to recruit some people uh, back to Toronto who have been working in Ottawa and the Trudeau government for eight years and trying to keep some allies there because she knows, given that she's essentially the leader of the minivan caucus and has very scarce resources, she's going to need all the help she can get in the interim as they build. And so this is a politician giving a non-answer trying to skate. Uh, she probably hopes that shows like this aren't going to talk about it beyond today's news cycle uh, and that she can punt on this longer term. But I think if you look at how deliberate the Ford government and the PC party has been in trying to define her as a tax and spend liberal and somebody who's going to make the cost of living higher, this is not something that's going to go away. And so if she thinks she is going to be able to punt on this, uh, I think her team needs to get a better answer because it's uh, not going to go away. Faye Johnston, your response to what Jamie said? Uh, agreed in full. I think I would have loved to see a strong principled response. Uh, I am one of those increasingly few Canadians who I'm a fan of the carbon tax, um, but uh, I'm not surprised that she punted. 
because it's not a popular issue. The federal conservatives are going to axe the tax all day, every day. So it isn't a, a position I'd want to put myself in as a politician. But I think we do need somebody who will speak up on principle, given that Alberta has already declared wildfire season oh, in February and that we're seeing this climate crisis rearing its head across the country. Uh, the federal government, uh, as as many governments are, are looking at how they can best protect us uh, when it comes to online harm uh, and and all of the changes we see on a almost hourly basis uh, when it comes to to online issues. One of the things they're looking at is a new ombudsperson to field public concerns and also a regulator that would oversee the conduct of internet platforms. I don't know, Matt. I just, whenever I see a new bureaucratic position, at least the ombudsperson one, I say that's a government that doesn't know what they want to do on this particular issue. Am I being too oh, harsh? Uh, no, 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 not at all. I, I would even be harsher than that. It's a government that wants to create like a black hole of accountability. It can punt stuff it doesn't want to talk about with. So, well, yeah, okay, gosh, scandal du jour, refer to the ombudsperson. And they know probably correctly that 95% of Canadians fall into a coma when they hear the word ombudsperson, right? So like yeah. this is, we are creating, and you can see it happening in real time when you pay attention to it. We are going out of our way as, as governments to create layers of accountability armor around all the decision makers so that no one who is enjoying the perks of being in power ever actually has to answer for anything. I like the idea of ombuds people. I like the idea of independent officers of the legislatures and the parliament that can hold these people to account. But I've seen them in action. The governments have learned how to dance around them. And I don't see why this one would be any different. Faye Johnston, I'm going to go to you because I cut you short on your time in the, the last topic and I'm running out of time again. You know, I, I, my baseline here is I would really love to wake up, open my Twitter or what some people call X and not see horrible, disgusting commentary targeted at me as a trans person. I don't care how governments solve that problem, but I know that online spaces are increasingly hostile uh, to folks from marginalized communities. The kind of filth that gets sent our way is a nightmare. But at the same time, I don't have much faith an ombudsperson of any sort is going to actually crack into this. I think we need X and Facebook or Meta or whatever we call them to step in. And I don't think government's going to be effective as a mediator there. Jamie Ellerton, I'm cutting your time off, not even short. But thank you all for joining me. Matt Gurney, Jamie Ellerton, Faye Johnstone got through more topics than I sometimes do. So I did a better job than I often do. Thanks so much Thanks. for joining me. Coming up after the break, we spoke earlier in the afternoon about a four-year sentence for an individual who choked his girlfriend. She ultimately died. We're going to discuss, I'm going to take your Because I don't find this acceptable.